0: We are in Hebrews six, working our way through the letter to the Hebrews. Last week we looked at the first eight verses, and I promised we would get to your questions this morning as much as I'd rather just move on. Uh, and so, let me open us in prayer. Father, thank you for timing Your Word. Wrestling together, uh, we pray that uh, that everything that You intend to accomplish by Your Word would indeed be accomplished. Uh, that this morning as we hear your word, as we wrestle with it, we would come to a right understanding of it so that we would look more and more like Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so last week we looked at 6, 1 through 8, which uh, if you weren't with us last week is, uh, is one of the more difficult passages. Uh, it's one of several warning passages where the author of Hebrews issues really serious warnings to the community. And we need to begin by, I'm kind of reviewing quickly last week's uh, time together, we need to begin by remembering who he's writing to, uh, that this is a community of people who, best we can tell, best we can reconstruct from the letter, are a group of people who are either tempted to abandon their Christian faith to go back to Judaism, what we today would would call Judaism, it's a bit of an anachronism, Uh, or uh, to begin at least sort of Hiding their Christianity in the appearance of Judaism to take on some of these these Practices from within the Jewish faith leading up to the time of Christ uh, and to to sort of hide because uh, The Jewish people were not under as severe a persecution as the Christians were Remember, there's a a period uh, of time a brief period in the first century where there's not nearly on the part of the romans uh, as much differentiation between christians and jews christianity just appears to be another sect of the jewish religion but as more and more distinction is made and as the the jewish themselves those who who hold to that jewish religion begin to then do their best to differentiate the christians they themselves right paul and acts uh, are, are persecuting Christians, it becomes more and more clear that they're not the same. And Christians, uh, particularly in the Roman Empire, the sticking point was often the demand that they, uh, they engage in certain practices to demonstrate their allegiance to the Roman Empire. Practices that violated their conscience, required them to engage in, uh, in pagan worship that the Christians simply refused to do. And for this reason, they come under persecution. It appears to be the case here. Dating the book of Hebrews, remember, is a bit difficult, but, uh, but probably the, the best dating is to about the time of the Nero persecution. And so uh, due to persecution, they are tempted to abandon the faith and uh, or to mix their faith in a way that is simply not acceptable. The author of Hebrews then is his big project is to hold Christ up as greater than anything they might go back to, particularly in the law of Moses. All of these things in the law of Moses are intended to point to the Messiah, uh, who who fulfills those things. Uh, He is the one towards whom those figures are pointing, and Christ comes and fulfills those things, uh, so that so many of those images, so much of that, uh, that temple practice That they were required to engage in is no longer necessary and so the author of hebrews his project through most of the book is to say christ is greater than this thing in the law of moses that you might go back to he's greater than this thing in the the law of moses that you might go back to we've seen that he's a greater messenger than the angels a greater messenger than the prophets Uh, and we've uh, we've seen in the previous chapters that jesus is greater than moses himself who is, uh, is perhaps the greatest figure in the Old Testament. And so uh, we come up to chapter six, and it would, it's natural, isn't it? If you're writing, if you're addressing yourself to a community of people tempted to, to abandon the faith or to uh, effectively abandon the faith by mixing it with false worship, uh, it would be natural not only to hold Christ up as better, worthy even of your suffering, Uh, but also to give stern warnings about the consequences of departing from that faith. And so that's what we saw last week in the first eight verses. Uh, So that said, I'm going to stop and ask if there are any questions on those eight verses, and if there aren't, we'll move on. Okay, hearing no questions, we're going to go on to verse 9. Are there any questions? David. David. David uh, prepped me for his question. Assuming you've stuck with the question and you didn't switch it out on me. so that's that's difficult and uh and i want to remind you as i answer the question that that i myself have had a covenant child walk away from the faith so this is deeply personal uh, to me um and so i don't i don't answer lightly but that said i think that uh, i think the warning that's being held out here is held out to a community uh, in which there are those who have converted from judaism into christianity those who have converted from paganism into Christianity, and those who have been born into this community and raised up in it. And the warning holds for all of them, uh, the intention of the warning. And, and as we move on from these verses in a few minutes, we're going to see the author of Hebrews rushes to remind them of, of where their hope lies, and it's not in their perfection, it's in the promises of God who cannot lie, right? Uh, so the, the author of Hebrews is, uh, I think we can, I'm going to say this and then perhaps caveat it, but the author of Hebrews is not trying to steal from them the assurance that belongs to them in Christ. Uh, but what he is warning them against is presumption. Uh, presumption that, uh, that they can walk away and they'll come back, for example. This is uh, we, we see this in church discipline. I've heard this more than once from people that, uh, that yes, yes, I know this is sin. Yes, yes, I know the Bible says I'm not supposed to do it, but I also know that God is very forgiving, and He's very patient, and I'm going to go do this thing, and when I'm done doing this thing, I'll come back to God. All right I think that's an example of the kind of thing that the author of Hebrews is warning against, that kind of presumption. Uh, but I also want to remind us that... Uh, what the author of hebrews is not talking about in these verses is merely walking away from the faith and the reason i say that is we have examples in scripture of people who have have i think we can safely describe it as abandoning the faith right denying christ we'll we'll go to peter right and having denied christ they're restored Uh, and so I, i don't think that this is a blanket warning that if you ever walk away from the faith and say, yeah, I don't know what I believe anymore or I'm not convinced by that anymore, that somehow that objectively places you in a group of people that cannot be saved no matter what, and that we ought to understand John and 1 John as saying, yeah, you shouldn't pray for those, right? Uh, And that there's no possibility of forgiveness for somebody who's walked away from the faith. That said, it's a serious warning. We talked last week about the fact that there are some who interpret this as a hypothetical uh, and the difficulty of, of accepting that, right? Uh, warning somebody so seriously about a hypothetical. To what end? Right? I mean, if you, if you warn me to be really careful not to let myself get spun off the planet out into space because there's no oxygen and I'll die. To what end are you warning me? I'm not going. I, I couldn't possibly be spun off into space. Can't happen. So what's the point in warning me about it? Um, we've also talked about. and I want to remind you because I think it's important that we interpret difficult passages of script, passages of scripture by going to the whole of scripture's testimony and particularly those clearer passages. So one of the things that's off the table here is that somebody who is regenerate can somehow die again spiritually. And having died again spiritually, they can't be born again a, a second time, right? That, that's off the table. It is not possible for someone who is born again, regenerate, to die spiritually again, right? Scripture's testimony is clear on that. So what are we, you know, what, what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? It's a warning intended to fight presumption, uh, a warning intended to fight... Uh, I I think it could be applied to uh, a warning to fight against being spiritually lazy about sin, uh, about rebellious living, but I think in the context, again, we, we don't get the impression that this community is so much morally lax as it is that they are tempted to abandon this faith, this Christian faith, to go back to Judaism. And so uh, I think the intention here is for those who have heard the gospel to double down on that gospel, right? Uh, I was talking to a friend beforehand, uh, and I think he said it well to flee to Christ. That's the intention. What do we do with these verses? Uh, we flee to Christ over and over and over again, and always we flee to Christ. David.
1: That, it, I've always found it helpful to remember these, these verses are for us to. Yes. Rather than um, a tool for us to use in assessing someone else. Yeah. So that they're about. I'm I'm supposed to use this for myself to ensure that I do not apostatize finally, mm-hmm. but I'm not supposed to use them to try and determine whether someone else has finally apostatized. Yeah. You know, instead I should always persist in praying for them and seeking to preach the gospel to them, witness to them. Yeah. Whether they finally bostize or not, it actually God's says
0: it's Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you, David. Other questions? Craig. I had a friend who proposed a kind of novel reading which I for the first year of this verse last week. Novel readings historically in Christianity are not helpful. <laughs> I've actually struggled with that, uh, to be honest. The, if we go back into the tail end of verse 5, or chapter 5, where the warning begins, uh, we talked about this last week, how uh, there, there seems, in my reading of it, I have difficulty following his logic, uh, following his argument, because he says, there's a lot more we want to say, uh, but you're dull of hearing, so all we can give you is milk. And then he he goes into chapter 6 and says, I'm not going to give you milk. Uh, And then he goes into one of the more difficult doctrines or or expositions, right? Uh, And so, yeah, how that that logical conjunction at the beginning of verse 4 connects uh, is something I haven't worked out yet. Uh, Let's see. Graham, were you the other hand I saw out of the corner of my eye? Yeah,
2: I mean, it would just seem like, based on the testimony of Scripture elsewhere, that we we, we simply can't read those who have once been enlightened, et cetera, as referring to being regenerated. And so that's got to mean something else. Agreed. Um, Trouble reading in that more limited sense is and have shared
1: in our
0: Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I think even that if we squint, Yeah, a lot of squinting in <laughs> Hebrews 6. No, I, I agree. We, we've ruled out the option that these phrases refer to, are intended to communicate uh, that the person in mind here is a regenerate person. Uh, I think they're subjective descriptions instead of objective descriptions. But again, going back to to David's comment a few minutes ago about the the role that this is intended to play in evaluating our own hearts, uh, I think the reason such strong subjective language is used is to essentially shine this warning into every crevice and dark corner in the, the church. Uh, which is to say, if you hear this warning and you say, well, he's not talking about me. I've tasted the heavenly gift, right? I've shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've, I've, I've got all these experiences, and, uh, and so that couldn't be me. I'm going to move on. No sense in dwelling on this. Uh, he says, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about you. Uh, you. You don't get to hide in an experience of something, though experiences are real. It's not a denial of experience. We're not Gnostics. Uh, and God does graciously, uh, mercifully uh, in experience as a part of the Christian life. But experience too often is subjective. Uh, and the warning he's issuing here, I think the author of Hebrews is not, he doesn't want anybody to flee into a subjective experience for their assurance. Um, And so if that's where you're going to go to try and skip uh, this warning or to to read it real quick and go, is that me? Nope, not me, and move on. He's saying, no, you're going to have to spend a little more time on this than that. Um, And I think that's consistent with where he goes in verse 9 and through to the end of the chapter in pointing us back to the promises of God as the hope and basis of our assurance. Other questions? Nathan? Crucifying Christ again. Uh, I'm not aware of any other passages where that, that language is used. It's fairly unique in this passage. Uh, I, I think I, I read seven and eight a little differently uh, in terms of the fruit that's being talked about there. Uh, it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated. I think that it's it's a fruit born out of faith, and the faith is the the point. So, does that answer your question? I'm going to take that as a go. (laughs) Any other questions? JD?
1: On Nathan's question about um, crucifying again, I wonder if the original audience would have connected that to Moses and striking the rock a second time. Oh, that's a
0: Yeah, I, i I think that's great. You should be a ruling elder. Um, yeah. No. It, what What I love about this is we've been we've been finding, haven't we, all the way through Hebrews, the uh, the underlying uh, references to the Exodus. That that it's. In fact, I don't think we've had a Sunday where we've read a new portion of the text and we've not found references to the Exodus. Uh, very occasionally explicit, but usually it's implicit, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I would love to explore that some more. Um, and so what, he, what J.D.'s talking about is in the Exodus account, there's a point at which the people are grumbling because they don't have water. They're out in a desert area, and God says to Moses, uh, I'm going to go before you and stand on the rock, strike the rock, and water will come out. And we understand, and this is confirmed by the New Testament, that, uh, that what's being uh, portrayed there is Christ being struck uh, and, and being struck for our sin and, and out of his being struck, living water flowing. But then there's a second account where God says to Moses now, speak to the rock. Uh, and Moses uh, in in a, uh, not one of his strongest moments uh, Stands up and says Must we bring water from this rock And he strikes the rock again uh, And Christ is only struck once For our sin, not twice It's for this infraction uh, That Moses is, is told He will not be allowed to enter the promised land It's a pretty serious deal um, And there's a lot more we could say About those two instances And what we see there but it is interesting that the author of Hebrews so clearly assumes his audience uh, knows this Exodus account, which is consistent with writing to a group of people tempted to go back to Judaism. And, uh, and keeps making these references that are, are kind of a, a, a nod to that Exodus account. And here he makes reference to crucifying once again, the son of God. That's, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know that I'd commit to that, Flat-footed, but I would love to think some more about it and and read about it a bit more Okay, Craig Okay, let's pick up in verse 9 uh, and immediately notice the, uh, the way that the, the author of Hebrews here transitions. He says, verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, and that beloved is very intentional there, uh, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Uh, That's important. I'll read it again, verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He wants them to have assurance. He just wants them to come by that assurance biblically right, as opposed to having a false assurance. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, okay, observations on those verses. What do you see there? Or questions you may have. Nathan. Yeah, the word imitate in this context, uh, in this cultural context, was not necessarily negative. Uh, and I'm not a classicist by any means. I'm not an expert on Roman, Greco-Roman culture. But my what little I, I do know about it, uh, the, outside of Christianity in that pagan context, one of the ways that, uh, that morality was understood, especially in terms of training somebody up, was uh, was focused on the virtues uh, and living according to the virtues and imitating somebody who was showing you how to live according to those virtues. And so the author of Hebrews is taking that up. There's nothing wrong with that approach as long as we're deriving our virtues from God's word, right? And so for the author of Hebrews to encourage uh, them to be imitators of those who, through faith and repentance, inherit the promises, notice also that the imitation here is not a mere uh, behavioral change uh, or those virtues which are fine and well in themselves and ought to mark a Christian, Uh, but it's, it's not those things they're to be imitators of, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So it's the faith and the patience in particular that they ought to be imitating. So the the author of Hebrews here has come out of the the stern aspect of the warning, the very serious encouragement uh, to carefully consider uh, and into a statement of his desire to actually uh, for them to have assurance, uh, a properly grounded assurance. And in verse 13, he moves to the proper grounds for that assurance. And here we do have a, a logical conjunction for uh, that, so, so based on, on what he's been saying, we understand he's now giving the basis for that assurance that he wants them to have. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here the author of Hebrews returns us to where he left off in chapter five, verse 10. Uh, So notice here, what is our hope grounded in? What is our assurance grounded in? Uh, It's grounded in God who has made promises. And his argument is, Uh, that when somebody wants to guarantee something uh, they do two things they they take an oath and they swear that oath by somebody greater than themselves Well, there is nobody greater than god and so god swears the oath by himself so it's an oath sworn by himself doubly if you will impressing upon us the certainty of the promises of god so reflections on those we will, uh, we've, we've got lots of time left today, 20 minutes, but I, I think we'll, we'll be in these verses, 13 through the end, next week as well. Okay, so let me go to Chase. I saw Chase hand, and we'll come back to Marsha. Yeah. And we talked about this last week, didn't we? That, that it's not, uh, the author's concern is not with a point in time. Uh, It's with an enduring quality of faith. Uh, And look at how he, he pairs these together in verse 12 through faith and patience. Those aren't two random unconnected qualities, are they? Faith by its very nature, requires patience. It involves patience. We are waiting and waiting in belief, right? We trust the promises. We know God is going to fulfill them. We don't know when, and we wait patiently for him to do that. And this is what Abraham does in his narrative. So when you come back up to, uh, to chapter six here, uh, after verse 13, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And look how the author of Hebrews brings it back out again. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Uh, so faith and patience are going together here. Uh, it's an enduring, uh, an endurance that the author of Hebrews is focused on. Uh, that language is, is also present in, uh, elsewhere here in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. So, uh, Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full, full assurance of hope until... The end. Right? There's an enduring quality to that faith and that hope that the author is calling them to and hopes for them. Uh, okay, what else in thirteen through the end of six? Oh, Marcia, I'm so sorry, I forgot. Coming back to Marcia. Yeah, so take a look at um, verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. That's one. The fact that God is greater than all. Yeah, yeah, people swear by something greater than themselves, of course there is nothing greater than God, so he swears by himself, uh, and, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, God, think about this, ordinarily an oath would be, uh, you know, like if you're in a courtroom, you put your hand on the Bible, and you make a promise. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And by the promise, and the confirmation of that promise, because I've sworn it according to the Bible, I'm I'm attempting to communicate that I promise, and and I'm going to keep that promise. Uh, There's there's nothing God can put his hand on No greater thing that God can swear by Right, kids on the playground I swear on my mother's grave Right, kind of morbid But they swear by something else More serious, right God swears on his own name By himself He will guarantee it And he makes a promise Uh, He swears an oath, right What else? Yeah, so that's the the bulk of these verses, isn't it? Um, He says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, uh, and then he goes on to talk about how it is that God swears that promise. Uh, It's interesting that he goes to Abraham. Abraham here, what's the, the reason for Abraham? Why Abraham as an example? Does he just happen? Are the details such that it fits the author's argument? So he, he chooses a, an example, makes Abraham his example because the details work. Why Abraham? Because of the covenant with Abraham. Yeah, he's talking about the covenant with Abraham and, and what's, is there any ongoing significance of the covenant with Abraham? Yeah, yeah, we belong to the covenant of Abraham, don't we? It's an ongoing covenant. Uh, Remember, in context here, he's moving towards grounding their assurance. And so he's grounding it, uh, of course, ultimately grounding it in the character of God. God has made promises. God keeps his promises. But he didn't pick a random example. It's the particular promises that we're called to trust, right? Right? Abraham and the Covenant God makes with Abraham It's that Covenant is the Covenant that we belong to it's the Covenant that we are in Those are the promises that were made to Abraham and his offspring Paul is going to clarify for us in Romans 9 that the offspring are not genetic offspring, but spiritual offspring which is consistent with what we're doing in Genesis isn't isn't it because when God says to the serpent he talks about the serpent's offspring He's not talking about actual baby snakes, right? And you say, well, then what does he mean by the serpent's offspring? How can, how can he, what does he mean if he's not talking about baby snakes? Uh, Well, the answer is given to us by Christ in the gospels. uh, When both Christ and John the Baptist say, you brood of vipers. And then Christ is even clearer elsewhere when he says, you do the things your father, the devil does. He's been a liar from the beginning, right? The devil is your father. So we get clearly from Scripture a means of understanding what's happening. Uh, All of the emphasis from the very beginning on offspring is pointed at two realities, at Christ himself as the ultimate seed, and then all of those who are in Christ as that offspring that belong to Abraham. Uh, Paul says this in uh, in Romans 4, doesn't he, uh, that, that Abraham is made the father of all who believe. So that the reality of that offspring is a spiritual reality. And this is why he chooses Abraham here in chapter 6. It's not merely that Abraham is an example of one time when God made some promises. Uh, It matters because we we certainly, ultimately, the the most important thing is we see the, the character of God in it, but it's not the character of God in some random instance. Oh, and at some point somewhere, he also made promises to us, but it's that he did this with Abraham, and we, by faith in Christ and repentance, are those who belong to Abraham. We're the offspring of Abraham, so those to whom the promises were made. Look at what he says. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, well, that's us. We are the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. What else? (laughs) Greg. Yeah, yeah, the, the problem with going back to Judaism is it was all intended to terminate in Christ. So if you abandon Christ, you're not even going back to that, that Old Testament practice, right? It's just outward forms is all it is. And it has no value because it's just outward forms. And the one that all of it terminates in Jesus Christ, you've rejected. And so there's no value in it to you. It can't accomplish anything for you to go back and just go through the motions of taking sacrifices to the temple. Yeah, yeah, the people in the wilderness wanting to go back to Egypt. Leeks and onions by the Nile, meat pots. Although meat pots doesn't make me hungry, that expression. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is the foundation for our faith and our belief. Right? So, yeah. I don't know if that's a stretch. No, I, I don't think it's a stretch, but I think it's drawn together in Christ. Uh, so that, uh, that when we, we see the author focusing on Abraham here and the promises God made to Abraham and how he swore an oath to Abraham on his own. Uh, And he wants us to understand those are our promises in Abraham That doesn't negate the fact that all of the promises of Scripture are yes and amen in Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and his offspring, right? Uh, And all of the promises of God in Scripture are are, uh, subsumed under Christ Christ is is the one uh, who is the promise and in whom all of the promises are granted. So
1: that would, uh, include
0: his, all of history, yeah. Of yeah, I mean, obviously, Scripture at, at points has some temporal promises. Uh, and so uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't say that those temporal promises are included, except in as much as they were intended to point to greater promises that are eternal. Yeah. 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 That's excellent. We just read about that in Joshua, didn't we? Uh, After Joshua uh, divides the land among the 12 tribes, uh, remember one of the 12 tribes is Levi and Levi doesn't get land. It's all very... If you think there are just 12 sons who are the 12 tribes and it's, it's actually a bit messier than that because Joseph, who's one of the 12, has two sons. And both of them are included as separate tribes, Uh, so that's 13. Well, then why don't we talk about the 13 tribes? Because Levi doesn't get an allotment of land. Uh, Levi are the priesthood and they get cities, right? And then in that, uh, in Joshua, we also read about the cities of refuge, cities spread out all over the 12 tribes allotments, where if someone uh, accidentally killed somebody else, they could flee to a city of refuge. And in the city of refuge, they were to be protected by the elders of that city uh, until the high priest died, right? And so uh, it is interesting that the author of Hebrews uses this language that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes set before us. And, of course, the high priest is, uh, is Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's good. What else? Notice he's returning uh, in verse 20, not only to Melchizedek, but to the the entire thrust with respect to Christ as our great high priest. Uh, And he's going to really lean into the Melchizedek theme in chapter seven. But look at verse 19 before we, uh, we move on. A very well-known verse uh, among those who have been Christians for some time. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Notice it's, uh, it's not we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That would be true, but a bit general. He says we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What do we have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? Yeah, God's promises, right? This oath God swore by himself, that's the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Right. If we read up to it, so when God desired to show, verse 17, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, this hope, which is what? Grounded in the character of God and his promises, that... That's the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And here we begin to transition back into the priesthood imagery, right? What's the, uh, the import of the curtain language? What's he? Yeah, access. How? How does that image communicate access? Yeah, the Holy of Holies and what happened with the Holy of Holies? What, what was true of the Holy of Holies before Christ? Yeah, only the High Priest once a year, and then only having uh, made atonement for himself personally and then atonement for the people, and he takes that blood up into the holy place, the Holy of Holies. Uh, and there is no other access time, any other time of year, even for the High Priest, and there is no other access ever for anybody else and uh, at the crucifixion of Christ, that curtain that represented the, uh, the separation between God and man that, that is uh, the result of sin, uh, that curtain is torn so that our access in Jesus Christ is, uh, is restored. Uh, remember, we lost fellowship with God in the garden at the fall and God is restoring that fellowship to us. Do you remember what's embroidered on the veil? that points us in that direction? Yeah, the cherubim, right? So we've got this place where God is, and we're not allowed to go, and the point at which we are required to stop has these cherubim embroidered on it. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3, the end of the chapter, when they're thrown out of the garden, uh, and and the fiery swords are placed there with the cherubim to keep them from, from coming back in. So, we have this uh, that is the hope that is ours in the unbreakable promises of God as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul and I want to be careful with what I'm about to say because i don't I don't want to read into it too much, but the image of an anchor for the soul certainly suggests storms, doesn't it uh, we are going to encounter storms. Our faith is going to be assailed. Uh, we are going to experience doubt because of our own knowledge of our own sin, uh, our grief and hatred over that sin. We're going to be uh, uh, assailed from without as the world both tempts us to engage in, in a sinful lifestyle, to rebel against God morally, to reject God. Uh, and his promises to to no longer believe those promises as this community likely is suffering uh, the demands that they engage in false worship or lose their lives or certainly their livelihood uh, they are in the midst of a storm and the author of Hebrews is telling them you have an anchor Uh, as one who's who's done quite a bit of sailing uh, it's uh, down in the the part of the world that we have done the most of our sailing uh, the way you typically spend the night is on a mooring ball. So It's a huge block of concrete on the bottom of the the water there and uh, 20 or 30 feet down it's got a, a line coming off of it and a float at the top so that it's always available there on the surface and you come up and you, you hook your, your boat into it and you would think that given the opportunity to do that or to drop anchor someplace, you'd rather do that, right? Nice and secure, you tie a line around it, big concrete block on the bottom. But the reality is more boats are damaged on moorings than boats that are properly anchored. Uh, If I know I'm going to weather a storm overnight, I would much rather be properly anchored than on a mooring. Uh, Properly anchored, uh, a boat is quite secure. The wind can change directions. The wind can blow and then be still and then blow and be still. A boat on anchor, assuming again that it's properly anchored, is going to, uh, to weather that, that storm quite effectively. It's, it's a visceral image, especially in a day and age where if you traveled, you, you probably traveled by boat if you went very far at all. Reminds me of the image in Acts with Paul, right? When they're in the storm and they throw four anchors overboard, remember? Off each corner of the boat, trying to, to get whatever security they can, no matter what direction the wind and the water are running. <clears throat> it's a, I think it's a, a beautiful image for us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Uh, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So let's pick up there uh, with verse 19 and 20 next Sunday, and uh, and then we'll move into chapter 7. Okay, we're out of time. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, that we do indeed have this, uh, this anchor of the soul, uh, that our hope is sure, that it's grounded in your perfection, grounded in your promises, which cannot be broken. Uh, Father, we thank you that this is the case, and we We lean into this and we flee to Christ even as we in the world uh, encounter temptation uh, and too often give in to sin. Father, uh, we thank you that our hope is not in our ability uh, to always only ever perform perfectly, uh, but our hope is entirely in Jesus Christ. We pray that knowing this, uh, we would not use that as a license to engage in sin, uh, that we would not be presumptuous about the uh, the likelihood of waltzing out and then waltzing back in any time we like, uh, but that, Father, we would search our hearts, that you would open our eyes to, uh, to know our hearts, uh, that we would love you, that we would love your word, that we would pursue hard after righteousness in this life and rejoice in the forgiveness that's ours even as we fail. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.